Last week, we looked at, at the beginning, the first uh, 10 verses in Hebrews chapter 7, looked at this guy, Melchizedek. Remember, we talked about he, he sort of steps out of the fog and shows up there in Genesis 14 and has this interaction with Abraham or Abram at that time, and, and then he disappears back into the fog. And, and yet, there were some really interesting things that went on because we saw that the writer says that Abram was lesser then Melchizedek. Why? Because Melchizedek paid tithes to him and, and, and Melchizedek blessed him. And so we looked at the blesser is greater than the blessee and in that sense. And so we looked at that. We looked at the tribe of Levi being the Levitical tribe, the tribe that was responsible for the priesthood in Israel, that God had appointed them through the law of Moses to carry out the priestly duties. And what we're going to look at today connected to that is there are two main functions of the law. One was the law, the 613 statutes that are in the law of Moses. It reveals man's sin. And God never intended that people live by the law, that that would establish righteousness before God. He intended that it revealed their need. And so the first aspect of the law was people seeing these statutes and and endeavoring to live by them, but nobody could keep them. No, it's not perfect because people aren't perfect. And then the second aspect of that was the priesthood was established so that when people broke the law, which was pretty regularly, that they would have a way to have their sins atoned for and covered, never eliminated, but covered. So the law provided a way for men to have limited access to God. There was never open access because man's sin continued to separate him from God. And understand that as we go in there into this passage this morning, We're going to look at the priesthood and the high priest some more, and we're going to look at the fact that it was inadequate. And not only was it inadequate, God replaced it. God, he terminated the Levitical priesthood. He terminated the law. And 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 so we see in that that if we try to set ourselves up, religion produces people that want to live, I want to have a list of checkboxes. I want to know at the end of the day that I checked all the boxes. Boy, was I good today, Lord. And yet, what relationship does is says, you know what, Lord? I know that my life would not measure up to your law, but I also know that the basis of the relationship is not law, it's grace. Because of the work that Jesus has done, because of what he has accomplished on my behalf, I no longer have to worry and sweat it out as far as being a good Christian. And I understand what people are talking about. They say, well, I try to be a good Christian. I understand that. But I want to encourage you, my friend, if that's something that is part of your vocabulary, you need to move past that and understand that when Jesus was, the the rich young ruler came to him and he said, Tell me, good teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, he didn't address the guy's question initially. What he said is, nobody is good. Why do you call me good? Nobody is good but God alone. And in that, again, we can see that, and through the the dialogue that they had, this guy was basing his relationship with God on law-keeping. And if you're going to base your relationship on law-keeping, guess what? There's always one more. And for this guy, he said, go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And it says that the guy went away sad, that he knew 
That, because, and it wasn't that we're all compelled to now give all of our stuff to the poor. What he was doing was reaching this guy where he was at and showing him his lack because he was, if he's going to try to live and, and establish a relationship with God on the basis of law and, and all of that, then he, that would be an unending thing. It would do nothing but produce condemnation in him for not measuring up. And he went away grieved, it said. He was condemned by his own heart. And Jesus simply revealed it. So as we've been looking at this, one of the things that, that I mentioned last week is the writer here is taking these people from a place of complexity. They had been under persecution. They had been going through all kinds of crazy things back in the first century. And we'll look at that a little bit more this morning. But he's taking them from a place of complexity to a place of simplicity. And I want to understand, I want to have you understand something about uh, simplicity. We've been talking about it. And I want you to understand that simplicity is hard work. What do you mean? Well, let me give you an illustration. Most of us have flown on an airplane. Uh, it takes off, you fly for a while, and then it lands, right? Simple. You don't think about it much. Most of you drove a car to get here this morning, unless you live close by and can walk. Uh, but you got in the car, you drove over, you parked and got out, and you were here. But what we don't think about a lot is what level of complexity does it take for me to get into a metal tube and go hurtling through the air 35,000 feet up at over 500 miles an hour? What, what's, what's under the hood? What is it? There's great complexity in the simplicity of flight, isn't there? There's great complexity if you were to get into the, the car and, and take out the dashboard which was, I worked as a mechanic for a while. It was one of my least favorite things. Dashboards, I, I think they were designed by demon-possessed men it, because it's horrible. There's so many, and when I would put it back together, I'd always have a pile of parts left over. But the complexity that is involved in a car, a simple thing like our car, is amazing. I, I When I worked as a mechanic, you still had plugs, points, and condenser. I mean... That was it for the electrical system. And and now it's like, oh my goodness, I can't even find the stuff, let alone work on it. Complexity. But simplicity is hard work. And, and the reason that the gospel is simple is because the work has been done for us. What the writer's going to get into here is, it, again, he goes into a complex argument to bring them back to simplicity, to bring them back to simple devotion to Christ. So three questions here in relating that to what we're talking about this morning. The first is this, is being saved simple? Yes, would be the answer. It is. The gospel is not rocket science, guys. The gospel, I mean, for the most elementary understanding to highfalutin theologians and all of that, everything in between. The gospel is simple. Uh, the second question is, does that mean it's easy? Not always. Very often it's very difficult to walk with the Lord, especially as the culture around us continues to degrade and crumble. As the light that we have glows brighter by simple virtue of the fact that the backdrop is just getting darker and darker, isn't it? And so it's not easy being a Christian. These guys had it tough. 
And, and so the third question is, does that mean there's nothing going on behind the scenes? That's never the case. God is always working ahead of us, isn't he? I don't understand some of the things that are going on in my life and where he is constantly bringing us to is places of trusting him for the circumstances within which we find ourselves. We don't always have good circumstances. We don't always have, and that doesn't mean, I talked about Uncle Al a couple of weeks ago, right? Yeah, he would say, yeah, how's business? And if I told him business was good, then he'd say, well, God is with you. And if I told him business was bad, well, maybe not so much. No, it's not cause and effect like that. God is working ahead of us, and he is allowing circumstances, very often engineering circumstances in our lives to work in our hearts, to conform us to the image of his son. And that's a glorious thing that he's working. That's part of what he's doing in us all the time. So it's, it's, there's never a point where there's not things going on behind the scenes, where the, the spirit of God is working and engineering things. The point is it's simple to us, again, because the hard work is, is done. The, the book of Hebrews is kind of like that. It, it, the writer's removing the outer layer, uh, of the part of that airplane or car, taking the dashboard off and looking at the machinery of why you and I get to get, go to heaven for free. I mean, basic gospel understanding, believe in Christ, you get to go to heaven and spend eternity in his presence, no charge. Cost you nothing. He did it all. Simple, right? But there's complexity in the simplicity. It being, it being simple doesn't mean that there isn't a lot going on. What the writer's going to launch into, and I say all of this is introduction for the main point of what the writer's going to launch into today, and it's fascinating argument in Hebrews 7 verses 9 through 19, or 10 through 19. And so the people that he was writing to, remember, they were finding it difficult to be a Christian. They were faced with all kinds of persecution, and and their answer was to go and try to build their own car in order to return to Jerusalem. They're going outside of the gospel, outside of the parameters that God had set forth, and trying to do the thing themselves. And and that's never a good idea. There will never be good results when we do that. We can do that too. Uh, the, Peter says in Second Peter, he's talking about the Apostle Paul, and he says Paul had things to say that were sometimes difficult to understand. And one of the reasons, my own personal opinion, is that the Apostle Paul may very easily have written this book, is Peter says there are things which the untaught and unstable distort to their own destruction. And so the writer begins to strip off these outer layers now, uh, and he's showing them and us all of the work that went into the simple salvation and relationship with God that we get to enjoy. So in order to approach this properly, folks, I've mentioned before many times, and I'll mention it again, it's essential that you have a Jewish mindset. Well, what does that mean? Um I don't think anybody brought sandals or a yarmulke to church this morning, but you have to assume what these people were assuming as a first century Christian, that that you had lived your entire life under the law of Moses. That everything, and it wasn't just something you did on Shabbat, on Saturday. This is a way of life. It was a lifestyle. And it was every day your life was steeped in Judaism. And 
the law of Moses was central to your understanding of how to relate to God. And the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood was central to your understanding of what was required in atoning for sin. One day a year, the day of atonement, the high priest would go in. Remember, we talked about that and make atonement for all the sins of the people that were committed in ignorance. So you've got this whole deal. You have from the time that you were a toddler, you have been being grilled on what it is to live according to the law of Moses. And you have you have seen the sacrifices that were offered day by day, month by month, year by year, that the sacrificial system was ongoing. Every day, those animals were being slaughtered for the sins of the people. And so into that, your entire relationship with God is built on the priesthood and the law. Now you receive this letter, and you're a Hebrew believer, and the letter states that the law and the Levitical priesthood are no longer valid uh, in having a relationship with God. What do you do with that? And that's why the writer is putting this down. So as you see on the screen, it talks about a better covenant. I want to talk about what a covenant is for a minute. Uh, A covenant is simply a contract or an agreement. In our Bibles, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. You could also call that the Old Covenant or the New Covenant. You could call it the Old Contract, which God initiates and writes, not us, or the New Contract, the New Covenant. And so what the writer's doing is he's talking about the covenant of law. And that's what the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is. It's a covenant of law. And that law was there for the people to observe, but it could never deal with sin. It never got to the heart of man. And so it was weak. And we'll talk about the imperfection of the law, the imperfection of the priesthood as we go along. And so, uh, it, it, but it spelled out the terms of the agreement. And the terms of the, the law were do it and live as opposed to the terms of the covenant, the new covenant. Grace is it's done. Therefore, love. Huge difference in the way that we relate to God. Many times, people that have a a poor or a weak or an uneducated understanding of God's word will try to impose old covenant standards on new covenant people, and that does not work. It leads to condemnation. It leads to guilt. It leads to, to legalism and to people being bound up. And that is anything but what God wants for us, his people. So it's critically important uh, that you understand these things because you'll never understand God's blessings in your life until you understand the things that the last few chapters in Hebrews that we've been looking at produce. And so really important stuff, really key understanding things this morning. Uh, it's not God's intention that you have a relationship which is built upon keeping rules. It's never a good idea. Uh, whether they're from the Mosaic law or they're self-imposed. And, you know, the old saying, I, I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go out with girls that do, that kind of a mindset, it's, it's not part of the Christian experience. Our flesh, like I said, loves it. Our flesh wants to have a checklist. Our flesh wants to know that we've either done good or, gee, I've got a dark cloud over my head. I didn't do so good. And, and that's, that's contrary. Uh, we'll talk about that again more as we go. It's doomed to failure. And, and you'll be frustrated if you try to live like that, if you try to relate to God like that. 
one of the things I was going down, I, I went to Medford, uh, last week to pick up, to meet my son and to pick up our three granddaughters, uh, having a fun time with them since. And, and on my way down, I spent four hours plus in the car by myself and I had downloaded, uh, some studies from some of my favorite guys pertaining to this chapter. And, and it was just studying. I, I told my wife, I'm going to just use it as a study day, just me and the Lord going down the highway and, and, you know, I could do audio studies since I'm not going to exactly read while I'm driving down the freeway. And it was just a blessed time. It was such a wonderful time. One of the things that really came clear to me is what happens when people do what Jesus accused the Pharisees of. Remember, he said, you tie up heavy loads for men. And what does that mean? What you're telling people is that unless you live by these rules, you are not worthy of the love of God. And it struck me so powerfully this week that whenever we try to deviate from the gospel, what we're sending is a message that people are not worthy of the love of God. The reason I left Mormonism was when my, the guy sitting next to me elbowed me, uh, and, and he told me not to take their equivalent of communion called sacrament. And he elbowed me, and, and I looked at him, and there I was, I was like 26, 25 years old. And, and I said, what? And he said, don't take that. And I said, why? And he said, because you're not worthy. And at 25 years old, I wanted at that moment to show him how unworthy I was. Um, it's like, you want to accuse me of it? I could show you unworthy, pal. But the point is, is that he was tying up heavy loads, wasn't he? And that's contrary to the message of the gospel. Folks, it is free. The grace of God brings us to a free relationship. The grace of God, my response is obedience. It is never a means towards the relationship. It is always a result of the relationship. And that's a huge distinction. I want to live a life that's pleasing in his sight. I want to live a life that's consistent with what he has laid down in his word. I want to live a life where the response of my heart is to love him. That, it can look the same on the outside. If you're, if you're tied up with rules and regulations, but the motivation of the heart is completely different. He calls us to a relationship on the basis of grace. He says, it's not your work that's impressing me, it's my son's. It's not the, on the basis of what you're doing, it's on the basis of what he's done. So important that we get that. And it was really important to the writer that the people here got that as well. And um, and, and so he's, he's going through this whole thing. He'll go through it. So I'm going to pick it up a little bit. In context, in verses 1 through 10 last week, we looked at, there were five things that we saw. The first is that Jesus Christ is their high priest forever. Underscore forever. We'll talk about that as we go. The second is that his priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. Not after the order of Aaron or Levi, but Melchizedek. This guy that actually predates those guys. And that his, that we looked also that if Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, and Melchizedek is a type for Christ, then Christ is superior to Abraham as well. He's laying groundwork now for talking about the law of Moses because Abraham predates the law. That we see that we saw that Jesus was superior to Aaron, that his priesthood is higher than Aaron's. It's, it, it carries more weight. 
We also looked at that his superior, Jesus is superior to every priest in history that came after the order of Levi. And so as we look at this section, we'll see that he's not only greater than Aaron, but that he's actually replaced Aaron. The background, again, the, it, remember, it's written to Hebrew believers. Persecution was breaking out, horrible persecution in ways. I mean, if you look in Acts chapter 9, you see where this guy Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul, that he went to the high priest in Jerusalem, and he requested permission, got papers to go and to travel about, rounding up Christians, and then bringing them back to Jerusalem to be tried with these mock trials and casting his vote for their executions. He was a persecutor of the church. He never got over that. He saw his sin. It was ever before God, and yet he lived in grace. So as it's into this scene that this letter is written, and I'll pick it up in verse 11. We'll read through verse 19, and we'll come back and take a look at it. It says in verse 11, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest, who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. I love that. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. That's a lot. And we'll do our best to work through this uh, this passage this morning and uh, dive right back into verse 11, where he talks about, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, uh, that's how the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Now keep in mind, again, the law and the priesthood were tied together. You could not unhook them one from the other. They were central to Judaism. Both had great weight in Judaism. So what he what the writer begins, he asks a logical question. He says, if perfection could be attained through the Levitical priesthood, then what need was there for another priest? Why would they need if, if perfection could come? But so the question is, is what's the purpose of the Levitical priesthood? The first is it was to deal with sin, the sin that came between the Jewish people and their God, Jehovah or Yahweh, uh, the same God that we serve. The second is the priesthood became necessary because no one was perfect. According to the law, perfection could not be found. That's why sin was covered and never eliminated. That's why sacrifices had to go on perpetually. They were never finished. 
there was an ongoing perpetual sacrificing of animals. I, I've joked before and said, you know, if I went down and I gave the, the priest an animal to sacrifice for my sin and I'm on my way home and some guy cuts me off with his camel and I get all upset, shake my fist, I gotta turn around, go right back and grab another animal and get it taken care of, right? So it, it was a perpetual thing because it covered sin. It never dealt with the heart. And that's the issue, folks. The law doesn't deal with the heart. It reveals sin, but it never addresses the heart of man. Grace does. We'll get to that. So the law revealed their sin, and they all sinned. Therefore, they all failed. No one could keep it perfectly. Therefore, under the law, the Levitical sacrificial system was established to offer sacrifices to cover the sins of the people. Do you see how they're linked? The law brings condemnation. But God in his love and in his mercy said, I understand that you're condemned by the law. And by the way, the law is good. It's an expression of his heart. Problem is we can't keep it. Neither could they. And so because the law pronounces condemnation on man, I'm going to raise up this priesthood and make a way for man to come into relationship with me, but in a limited sense. And so uh, it, neither was perfect. The law couldn't produce righteousness and the, the, the priesthood couldn't produce a relationship. It couldn't bring people into the presence of God one time, once a year, as we mentioned. So the problem was the year after year that as the sacrifices continued, they couldn't give a per- person perfect standing before God. They could never do that. And so remember, thousands and thousands of animals perpetually being offered and no one could draw completely near to God because of their sin. So uh, it, it was always a reminder that our sin separates us from God. And that's how it would be for these people steeped in Judaism, steeped in the law, steeped in the priesthood. They would always have a reminder that it was never complete. It was never perfect. And that's what the writer's saying. Why would there be another priest if the law produced perfection? It didn't. It failed in that sense. It was never intended to be permanent by God. It was always intended to be a temporary solution that looked forward to fulfillment in Christ. So the point is, the priesthood and the law were imperfect, and God never intended that they last forever. It was never part of his plan. So verse 11, also it says another priest... The word another there is the word heteros. It's where we get the word heterosexual. And what it means is another of a different kind. Okay? And so he's not talking about another priest of the same kind of the tribe of Levi. And when we talk about a heterosexual, is a person whose attraction is for another of the different kind. And, you know, for the opposite sex, obviously. And so what he's talking about there is that when there's another priest that needs to come onto the scene, it's another of a different kind, not of the order of Levi, but the order of Melchizedek, the high priesthood being replaced now. So uh, verse 12, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Now, if I were a Jew in the first century and I read this, this would get my attention. This would, I mean, this is a startling statement, you guys. What do you mean there's a change in the law? That's all I have ever known. What do you mean that the priesthood's changed? I was just trying to get on board with that, and now you're saying that the whole foundation's gone. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what he's saying. So, again, 
of necessity, there's also a change of the law. The priesthood was instituted under the law. It was, as I mentioned, an integral part of the law. And so when you unhook the priesthood, guess what? You unhook the law. To convince these people that the law of Moses was temporary and inadequate would have been a huge task. But through the work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness to these people as they read this letter, not an insurmountable one, Evidently, this letter has so much weight, it was circulated widely among the early church. And they hung on to this. They saw that there was a shift in the way that God related to men, that this new covenant of grace was the only way to God. It would never be on the basis of law again. So it's important. Groups, There are groups out there that are claiming that you must do this or that or you will not be loved by God. That's essential. They won't tell you that blatantly, but that's what's assumed. Oh, you want to live your life? You want to, oh boy, you know. I was talking, I think it was Connie Riley, being raised in uh, in uh, a church where they weren't allowed to go to dances when they were, and it's like, really? I mean, do you really want to, like, build a fence around people and, Tie up those kind of loads. I, I, I know when I, I when I grew up in the LDS church, there was so uh, salvation was by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. It was it was a sham. And when you read this, you see the the tremendous important it is importance it is to us that we understand that we are called to freedom, freedom within a secure relationship. Yes, but freedom. We are not compelled to live by laws. We are not compelled to a list of rules. So when he's talking about this change in the law, he's talking about a change in one means a change in the other. The law couldn't survive without the priesthood. No priesthood, no atonement for sin. Okay, so if you've changed the high priesthood, then you've unhooked it from the law of Moses, right? And if you've changed the, the if you've terminated the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, if you've terminated that, then you have totally gutted the law. And what he's saying is that's not a bad thing because it was going to be replaced in Christ. So if there's no atonement for sin any longer in the law, then the law needed to be replaced. That's the point he's making. So both the priesthood and the law were imperfect. And he's building upon a point, and the reason as we go along in verse 13, for he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. Never had there been anybody at the altar as high priest from the tribe of Judah. For it is evident, verse 14, that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And when he talks about Moses, that's synonymous with the law, of which there's nothing in the law that talks about somebody from Judah assuming the priesthood. He's, he says, it is evident. He's speaking of Christ. Now, when he says it's evident, I want you to understand, these people understood that Jesus was not some mythological figure. He really walked the earth, and he really performed the work of redemption on our behalf that, that the Bible puts forth that he did. That was assumed. He says it's evident that this guy, Jesus, that he came from Judah. We all know that is what he's saying. Um, and 
when he says that, he's saying that the law had no provision for a priest from Judah, and, and the people would be thinking, how is that possible? He comes from Judah? And of course, they knew that, but they don't understand what he's getting at here. And that's, as we're in the middle of this argument, and we'll go on here, in verse 15, as it is yet far more evident, so it was evident that he came from Judah, it's now far far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest. So he's talked about the ineffectiveness, the imperfectedness of the old priesthood and the law. It's far more evident if there's a change in the priest, uh, or a change in the law, that that would produce someone that would need to come from the the, the the line of Melchizedek or the order of Melchizedek. That That's how the priest would come, not from Judah. Verse 16, who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. What does he say? What does he mean by that? The law of the fleshly commandment was that if you were a priest in Israel under the law, you came from the tribe of Levi. It was all about ancestry. It was all about heritage. It was all about your lineage. If you didn't come from Levi, you didn't become a priest. That's simple. If you weren't among the sons of Aaron, which were from the, the tribe of Levi, you didn't become a high priest. You didn't officiate at the altar. That's the fleshly commandment. So what is he saying here? He's saying now it's no longer on the power of the fleshly commandment on the fact that you you came from the tribe of Levi. It's not even about being from the tribe of Judah. It's about the power of an endless life. It's it's about, he's saying what I've just said is even more clear if another priest appears to, who has not come according to the law of the fleshly commandment, it's the, Melchizedek's priesthood existed before the law was given. The priest to come would not be according to that law, the law of Moses, but only through the power of an endless life. In other words, he goes back to the resurrection, guys, and he says, look, here's the only one who has fulfilled this order of Melchizedek who has an endless life. In other words, you have a high priest that is not going to die, and we talked about that briefly last week, and you have not only that, you have a, a high priest who will hold his office forever, the power of an endless life. And that's what you get in the high priesthood of Christ. So when we look at the that, these guys from Levi, as I mentioned, they eventually died. Jesus comes along after the order of Melchizedek with the power of an endless life, and he lives forever. He will never diminish from that office. Are we without a high priest? No. Are we without the law? Yes. Are we without priests from the tribal? Yeah. Any, as I mentioned last week, any form of priesthood uh, that assumes to get people to God and God to the people is not biblical. It, we have direct access, folks. We no longer need that because we have a high priest who ministers in the heavenly sanctuary. We have a high priest who goes and makes intercession for us. So he, he's, his ministry is indestructible. It's not the fleshly commandment. It never ends. 
Verse 17, for he testifies, literally that could be rendered, it is testified or declared, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now what the writer is doing here, again, he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 4, and he's reminding them of their own scriptures. He's using, again, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament was in place at that time. That was their Bible. And so he's going back and he's tying this to the scripture and saying, look, in Psalm 110, King David wrote about this, this thing that I'm expounding on here, and essentially saying, that's the power of the endless life that I'm talking about. You're a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, David, a thousand years before this was written, would have no idea, as he wrote this, that he would be prophesying of the coming Messiah. Yeah, he he knew that he was writing prophetically, but he's just going under the inspiration of the Spirit. And, and it's a thousand years before, and he would he would not know that the Levitical order would be replaced. And so the writer again he reaches back and he uses Psalm one ten as proof that the things that he's saying are accurate. That these people could bank on them. He can never be replaced. Verse 18, for on the one hand, there's an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Looking back to the Levitical priesthood, an annulling meant a setting aside. So understand what he's saying here. Uh, the commandment that established the Levitical priesthood is what he's referring to. Why is that? Because it was weak. Because it was imperfect. The bottom line, the priesthood had to be abolished. It could never bring people into right standing with God. It could never bring about righteousness. It could never, there would always be a veil between God and man. That's what the veil was for, both in the tabernacle and then in the temple. It separated the presence of God from man. And so when the veil was torn, when Jesus hung on the cross, the veil was torn because access to God was now open, because the Levitical priesthood had been abolished, because there was a new way of relating to God. A new covenant was coming into place. A reminder here that um, these people, all that they'd known, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the offerings, they were entrenched within these people. And, and, and so the writer is hammering this home. He keeps backing up and hammering it from a different angle, doesn't he? he and, and it, we'll see that again next week as we can hopefully finish this chapter that he wants to be very, very sure that these people understand there, you can't go back to Judaism. There's nothing there. If you try, you're going back to laws. You're going back to a weak and imperfect covenant that will not produce a relationship with God. And if you want to be loved by God, you need to understand that's not the way to go. And that's his whole point in this. He says in verse 19, he says, the law made nothing perfect. I'll share a story with you. Um, uh, I shared with some of the guys. Uh, when I was a teenager, I, uh, I after my junior year of high school, I moved to Fife, Washington and enrolled in high school and I got three part-time jobs and lived on my own, actually, and uh, <laughs> finished up my senior year. And one of those part-time jobs was at a place called the Tacoma Veterinary Hospital. And uh, my job, being the highly educated person that I was, was to take the dogs out of the kennels 
and put them in the runs so I could clean the kennels and then take the dogs out of the, the dog runs outside and put them in the kennels so I could clean the dog runs. And let's just say that I had a lot of job security. Um, it was never ending. And so anyway, we had this one particularly vicious dog. I mean, this dog, I mean, if you walked past the kennel, he would be like, and if you got close, if you start, he would start snapping at the air because he just wants to find skin. I mean, he was one of those kind of dogs. And I was like, what do I do with, how do I get this guy out of the kennel and out to the dog run? And I thought, I know. I was all alone this one afternoon at, at the vet hospital. And, and so I, I took a, a little stick and I fished a choke chain in between the bars, right? And I finally got it, you know, after he's doing all this the whole time. And I got it around this dog's neck. And I thought, well, I have to be able to control this dog or he's going to eat my ankles. He was a little furry thing. And... Sorry, does the disdain come out? Yeah. Uh, is this is a little furry, and I love dogs. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely love dogs. I, I, yeah, whole different deal. But, so I got this choke chain around this dog's neck, and I pried the door open, and I got the chain looped up on the top, and I got this dog down on the ground. Well, he's immediately trying to charge for my legs. I mean, this dog was just, you're talking sin nature, and that's it? Okay? And so, I found that the only way I could really control this thing is if I lifted his front legs off the ground. That worked great. And so I got this dog and he's like stepping around like, you know, and, and I'm, I'm trying to get him out to the dog kennel or the dog runs now. And I'm, I'm controlling him and I'm not getting bitten. And I get like 10 feet from the dog run and I'd forgotten. Choke chain, no air. And the dog went totally limp. All of a sudden, I got this rag doll on the end of this chain, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I've killed the dog. And so I get down on the floor, and I'm blowing air in this thing's face, and I'm trying to push on his chest, and I'm like, I don't want to get too close, because if he comes to, he's going to bite my face, right? And so finally, I got the dog revived, and I got him you know, into the deal, and it was all good. Well... <laughs> I began to think about that as I was looking at this. He says, for the law made nothing perfect. If What I ended up doing with this dog was putting a muzzle on it because then he couldn't bite. That's kind of like, the dog is kind of like the law. Follower, the dog is like our sin nature, I, I, let's say, and, and the muzzle is like the law. What the, what the law does is it puts a muzzle on sin. It doesn't get rid of it. And, and yeah, I can, I can do okay, but I'm never, that dog's nature never changed. When I put a muzzle on it, I was able to restrain it. I was able to control it. But that dog still was meaner than any dog I ever dealt with. And the point is this, the law couldn't bring people close to God. It never changed the nature of man. It couldn't do it. It was imperfect. It was, it was inadequate. Adequate, yes, for control. Adequate, yes, for a covering for sin, but totally inadequate to bring us into the presence of God. Totally inadequate to give us a changed heart, a changed life. And and if I want to live by the law, I'm putting a muzzle on the dog. That's all that it does. That's why, and I'll tell you folks, uh, is something I, I was taught years ago. If you preach 
grace, you end up with, and, and which is biblical, you end up with happy Christians. You end up with people that are free and they understand the freedom that they have and they love the Lord and they just want to live lives in harmony with others and in harmony with Him. Love God, love other people. You preach law, you're going to get a cranky bunch. You're going to get a bunch of people that are always looking at the other one to see if they're out of line or not. And, and that's our nature. You're putting a muzzle on the dog. And if that's your habit of doing things, stop it. It will not do anything but make you miserable. And oh, by the way, the people around you miserable. Because it's about grace. Because it's about a new covenant. It's about a new way of relating to God that's not on the basis of my work. It's not on the basis of my rule keeping. It's about on the basis that he did the work. Simple? Yes. Complex in its nature? Yes. But simple in its application to us. So when he says that the law made nothing perfect, nothing perfect, this is, it's an incredible statement because the law could never bring people close to God. Uh, some supporting passages here. Romans 3.20, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 10.4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Galatians 2.20, and these are just a few. I could go on and on. Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So the purpose of the law, it revealed to men and women that they were sinners. And it paved the way for people to come to have a hunger for God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If it's on the basis of law, you'll never get to heaven. That's what he's telling them. You won't. It would never produce a relationship. The relationship, the nature of the covenant changed. The old one was canceled. It didn't work. The new one is in place. It's perfect. Why? Because the one who it is all about is perfect. And folks, if that doesn't bring a sense of gratitude and praise in your heart, if that doesn't light your fire, you got wet wood because it is all about the grace of God. It is all about the work that he did. It's all about the fact that now, therefore, we can just simply be free to love one another. Cracks, warts, blemishes and all because he's the one that wants to be on the throne of our hearts through the grace of God, through simply trusting that he did the work that I couldn't do. So what the law would produce is there'd be no peace for these people. And, and, and considering going back, he's trying to show them again. He's showing them how foolish it is to think about going back to what was comfortable. And, and, and they were comfortable in that because it was what, that's how they grew up. That's all they knew before Christ. But it was going to produce a disaster for them. And he wanted them to know, you won't have peace, you won't have rest, you'll always be doubting, you'll always be questioning, there's nothing there for you. And folks, there's nothing there for us. If you ever get involved in a church that starts to tie up these things, that starts to tie up a load for you, I have one word of advice. Run. It's not the gospel. It's not the grace of God. 
It's either by what I do or what Jesus Christ has done. It's that simple. That's what it looks like under the dashboard. That's what it looks like when you peel off the outer layer of the plane. And the writer, he's, he's doing this again. Yes, he's bringing them through to simplicity through some complex arguments, but they're arguments that they would totally understand, they would totally connect with in their lives because of the way that they had been raised, because of their entire heritage. Verse 19, the second half here, On the other hand, there's a bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The better hope, obviously, is Jesus. We can draw near to God. We can never draw near to God through law-keeping. But with Jesus as our high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. You know, God never intended that the Gentiles, us, anybody who's not Jewish, he never intended that Gentiles have a priesthood. And, and I understand that we're called, Peter calls us the kingdom of priests. And what he's talking about is I'm the priest in my home. In other words, it's not that I am responsible for my wife's relationship or my kids or grandkids or whatever, but it means that I'm setting the tone in my home. And, and that's a loose use of that word. But as far as the priesthood, as far as the Levitical priesthood goes, that was for Israel and that was for a time. When I see churches, organizations that put forth Laws, rules, regulations. I talked about last week in Colossians 2, where those things are shadows. Those things are there. It's a mirage. It's chasing a mirage. And you get out there to where that thing was, and it's not there. They'll produce nothing. The point is our security is in a Savior who's fulfilled the law for us. And the law couldn't draw us to God. Through the law, these people could not find the love of God. It's only by his grace, and it's only by realizing that while I was yet a sinner, that Christ died for me. The Bible says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he makes intercession for us. Praise God. Praise God that we have a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Praise God that that the whole system that was in place in the old covenant was done away. It was abolished. And any any attempt to try to resurrect that is a sham. It's a total sham. And it will rip people off. It's not a neutral thing. It's going backwards. And so I just encourage you guys this morning, it's by his grace, it's through understanding the love that he has for us and allowing that love to work in our lives, in our hearts, to where the Bible says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. That's why, like when we study the Gospel of John, it's so important that we walk in love for one another. And, and, And I understand sometimes people are cranky and sometimes people become judgmental or critical. But if that if that's existing in your heart, I would encourage you to check that. Allow the fruit of his spirit to come forth, which is simply love. And as we love one another, we will be more effective in reaching out in our community, in our families, in our workplace, because that's what attracts people. What is going to attract people is to know that they're valued. Why are they valued? Because we have great value in God's eyes. Uh, I love what one preacher said. He said, Christ didn't die for no junk. Praise God. Let's pray.
Father, thank you um, for this oh, brief look at, at this, again, the, the old covenant versus the new covenant. Thank you, Lord, that, uh, that you've ended.